This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then Emma Shortis, Fox International Fellow at Yale University, called in to talk about the latest in US politics. Then I had Rachel Botsman, who is an author and speaker, come in to talk about her new book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Could Drive Us Apart. And finally, film director Yariv Moser joined me to talk about his documentary, Ben-Gurion Epilogue, which is currently screening at the Jewish International Film Festival and features previously unseen footage of David Ben-Gurion, the State of Israel's first Prime Minister. Yes, this is 3RRFM's Uncommon Sense with me, Amy Mullins. And as I said, we now have Ben Eltham in the studio uh, and he often joins me to talk about federal politics and that is exactly what we're going to do now. Hi, Ben. Good morning. How are you, Amy? Morning. Good. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. Yeah, had a good weekend? I did. I had a bit of a Halloween party. Yes, very, 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 very well done, may I say. Congratulations. It was my pleasure. Um, I was in particularly impressed by the uh, lychee eyeballs. That was pretty cool. Yeah, there, there was the brain cake you missed, actually. I did that, miss out. That was pretty good, too. I saw remnants of it and it yeah. did look gross. <laughs> I'm sure it tasted nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good times. But uh, it is it is Halloween, so, you yeah. know, we will indulge in some gauche. Look, I may well go around local houses and beg them for sweets and lollies later on this evening. Yeah, you may with a uh, certain person. <laughs> She's very compelling, can I say. Yeah, yeah, look, absolutely, particularly when she's got her vampire teeth in. (laughs) Yes, we're talking about Ben's daughter, who is just gorgeous, and she did sport some fabulous vampire teeth, which somewhat suited her. Yes, uh, very scary. Yeah, it was, it was. Anyway, (laughs) happy Halloween to everyone if you you get into that kind of stuff. If you don't, just use it as an excuse for lollies. Uh, But, Ben, some politicians may need uh, some sugar and... uh, other things to drown their sorrows, particularly those uh, who their fate was to be decided in the High Court. Some had already left, such as Green Senators Larissa Waters, for example. Uh, but what happened? The High Court has delivered its verdict on the fate of the uh, people, the MPs and senators whose citizenship was under question. They were dual citizens, allegedly, uh, of Australia and other nations. Where are we at now? Uh, Yes, the High Court handed down their decision on Friday and five of the seven senators and MPs who were at risk of having their, you know, parliamentary status revoked, um, indeed went down. So the five are Barnaby Joyce, Fiona Nash, Malcolm Roberts, and of course uh, Ludlam and Waters from the Greens. Exactly. And so uh, the people who are in the clear is Senator Xenophon. That's right, Senator Xenophon and Canavan um, from the LNP. Uh, They're fine. Um, Of course, Xenophon's already basically resigned to you know, have a tilt at South Australian state politics. Uh, But Matt Canavan, uh, the LNP Minister for Resources in Northern Australia, he'll be able to resume his Cabinet post. Mm. But the interesting part is he resigned 
temporarily from his cabinet post whilst his uh, this case was going through the High Court so that there wasn't any question around his decision-making uh, and involvement in key government decisions and legislative votes. But Barnaby Joyce, who is the Deputy Prime Minister, he's the leader of the Nationals, Fiona Nash is the Deputy Leader of the Nationals, Both of them have been ruled to be uh, ineligible to have been sitting in Parliament given their dual citizenship status. So now the Nationals have no leaders. Uh, And also um, there's a lot of questioning, particularly by Labor, about... Uh, the fact that Barnaby Joyce didn't step aside whilst this was going through the High Court and therefore the legislation that he has voted on is under question. Yeah, that that is one legal theory that um, Labor could now challenge the decisions that Joyce and Nash have made while in the Cabinet. Uh, let's let's dwell on Nash for a little bit. I think this is the end of her political career. She looks to have been forced out of the Senate now um, and a Liberal senator will take her place because uh, she's the next on the, the ballot. Um, as for Barnaby, uh, he's going to run in a by-election in New England on the 2nd of December and I think he'll pretty comfortably be re-elected there in that by-election. So he'll be pretty much, once, once he is re-elected, he'll be able to take up his position as Deputy PM again. Whether or not these decisions that he's made, and apparently there's dozens and dozens of them, whether they or, or you know are challenged, um, that could be a big headache for the government going forward. But we won't know, of course, until legal challenges are made. No, and New England may have had some form of a contest had Tony Windsor, a former former member for New England, had he truly put his hat in the ring and he had intimated that he may do that and he did uh, bring one of the cases to the High Court against Barnaby Joyce, so clearly he was considering this as an option. Why did he not run? Um, He said that he didn't want to do it because of the toll it would take on his family. So um, he wasn't up for another brutal campaign. Um, And I think that's fair enough. You know, he has retired now. He was in politics for a long time. Uh, And there's no real opposition candidate for Joyce up there in New England. Um, The Shooters and Fishers aren't running a a candidate. I think Labor will run, but Labor polls very, very low uh, in that country electorate. So um, I think Joyce will be pretty safe, basically, Mm. there. Well, the only chance is an independent candidate that's very well known by the electorate, uh, such as we saw the revolution of Cathy McGowan in Indi, but uh, we don't know at the moment if there are any of those such people waiting in the wings. I think that's very unlikely, and I think you've got to remember that Barnaby Joyce is very popular up in New England. Um, the Joyce family's got a long-standing background in that part of the world. Joyce himself was born in Tamworth, ironically, um, given his dual citizenship status. So I, I don't see Barnaby having too many problems, actually, on the campaign trail. No, no, we don't now. So, Ben, given that that's a bit of a non-issue at the moment uh, and that High Court decision has been made, in terms of the government returning to... Uh, sitting sitting parliament that will be coming up soon and that means they are one less mp Uh, they only had a majority by one so what's going to happen there well that does pose some interesting challenges for the government on the floor of the lower house because uh that's right they no longer have uh, a clear majority and joyce is out of action until he's re-elected Um, That enables Labor to maybe make some mischief. Uh, There's talk about putting forward another bill on a Royal Commission for the banking industry. The Greens, Adam Bant, is very keen to put his bill about that forward again. Um, 
that could get up. You know, it really just needs one or two coalition MPs to cross the floor and that will succeed. Um, so that's a possibility. Uh, another possibility is a bill to uh, wind, uh, to reverse the penalty rate cuts um, because that bill only went through by the one vote, the vote of Joyce, um, earlier in this parliament. So that's another possibility that Labor might go for to try and, um, you know, put in a law that would restore the penalty rates um, in the hospitality and service sector that have been wound back by the Fair Work Commission. So there's a few legislative challenges for the government there in terms of the numbers. It would be very interesting, obviously, if a Banking Royal Commission were to get up in Joyce's absence. Uh, Yes, absolutely. And perhaps Senator Xenophon might have been regretting his decision because I know he was very keen on a, a banking royal commission? Well, I think the Senate would clearly vote for that. So if the House voted for it, then I think it would probably be successful. And of course, that would really set the cat amongst the pigeons in the banking industry. Because mm-hmm. as we know, there's multiple, multiple scandals going on in banking. We should probably talk about that one week. Well, we will be talking about that with Rachel Botsman oh, today. There you go, so there even you go. better. Ask we can her bring about it the Commonwealth Bank because I think they've <laughs> got a few trust issues. Well, there's a there's trust issues in banking worldwide, isn't there, <laughs> yeah, Ben? Indeed, indeed. Uh, now let's talk about industrial relations because there was a raid, an AFP raid on the Australian Workers Union's offices, and somehow the media became aware that this raid would be occurring and were ready with cameras when and the AFP showed up. How did that happen? Yeah, extraordinary scenes last week in both Sydney and Melbourne with um, no less than 30 Australian Federal Police officers turning up to raid uh, both officers in Sydney and Melbourne of the AWU, of course, uh, uh, one of Australia's best-known trade unions. Um, formerly for- led by Bill Shorten. Yeah, formerly led by Bill Shorten, um, a, a key player in the internal politics of the Labor Party um, and, you know, one of the oldest and, and most established trade unions in the country. Now, what what were the AFP looking for? They were looking for documents relating to a AWU donation to GetUp way back in 2005 when Shorten was, of course, uh, the secretary of the AWU. The AFP executed the warrant from an organisation called the Registered Organisations Commission, which is a government body set up in this parliament, actually as a result of the double dissolution election last year, it's a watchdog to police unions and it, take, it takes its orders from the Employment and Workplace Relations Minister, Michaelia Cash, and she instructed the ROC, as it's been called, to, to investigate the AWU over this get-up donation. So um, a pretty clearly political motivation here for this raid and, of course, people want to know why were the media there? Why did the media know about it before the AWU knew about it? Mm-hmm. In fact, the first that the AWU knew about it was when the media turned up and said, hey, there's a raid about to happen. And they're going, (laughs) what? Um, And as we found out last week in Senate estimates, in fact, it was because of a tip-off from a staffer in Cash's office. And this is very, very significant because before that happened, Cash had told the Senate five times, no less, that her office had nothing to do with the media being present at that raid. So it looks as though Michaelia Cash has misled the Senate. And really, under the conventions of the Westminster system that our politicians say that they abide by, Michaelia Cash should now resign. However, she's not resigning. 
No. And she denies that uh, she knew anything about what her staffers were doing or one particular staffer at the time. And there is no evidence to show that she did know that uh, until she was informed later in the day by her staffer and then got received that resignation. There's no prima facie evidence, but I would say there's quite a lot of circumstantial evidence uh, that Cash knew. I mean, let's look at what happened here. For about seven hours, this staffer, David DeGaris is his name, a veteran Liberal operative, stood and watched Cash tell the Senate estimates that she knew nothing about this raid. And then late in the evening, he decided to tell his minister that, yes, he phoned the media and tipped them off. And then she had to go back into Senate estimates and correct the record. Um, And then he's now resigned. Now, This, to me, is not a very plausible course of action. To me, it seems pretty obvious that Cash actually did know. It's very unlikely that a chief spin doctor for a minister would do something as serious as phone the media about a union raid and not inform the minister before doing so. So I just don't believe Minister Cash on this one. I think she lied. Well, we'll have to wait for the true evidence, Ben, before we could say anything to that Uh, fact, but I can see the logic in your arguments. Yeah, and I think uh, Labor's going to keep up the pressure on cash because this is about the government's obsession with fighting unions and union busting. And I think the tide has turned to some degree on trade union busting. So, I mean, the government has long harboured a hatred for the trade union movement, uh, representing organised labour, of course. Uh, The government, being the Liberal Party, often represents organised business, particularly the business lobby. So there's no love lost between those two interests. Uh, but but even even accepting that, the government's pursuit of unions in this administration has been very, very assiduous. You know, mm. we've had the Royal Commission into Trade Unions, which didn't really turn up much malfeasance or wrongdoing. Um, we've had investigations of Bill Shorten. We've had investigations of Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. Uh, you know, there's been a strong element of trying to punish trade unions uh, by both the Abbott and the Turnbull governments. And it's starting to backfire on them, I think. Well, let's hope that uh, the over-focus on just one area of Australian economic life, um, you know, reverses because there's so many other areas where transparency and accountability would be better placed. Well, you know, the trade unions make the obvious point, you know, why aren't these raids happening on big banks? Why aren't these raids happening on some of the employers that have been ripping off workers and not paying them their proper wages? You know, where were the raids on 7-Eleven when it was revealed that they had withheld hundreds of millions of dollars of wages from franchisee employees. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, very, very serious allegations across many sectors of the economy relating to industrial relations and yet the entire focus of all of this kind of regulation seems to be on trade unions. Yes. And Ben, uh, there is some development in in terms of a new policy from the Labor opposition. Uh, this one's around free trade agreements. And uh, in the past, Labor and Liberal governments have negotiated free trade agreements saying that, well, they're generally good 
Uh, there's not a lot bad that can come of a free trade agreement because we're now in a globalised world and neoliberalism is great. Uh, and they both were party to negotiations on the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, which uh, has stalled. So they've kind of been invested in this whole process. But Labor has now suggested uh, that they would like the Productivity Commission to review every free trade agreement before it is implemented and officially signed off by the government and then reviewed every 10 years to see if it's still delivering upon what they expected it to do so. Yes, interesting development here from Labor. I mean, Labor has traditionally, or certainly since the 80s of Keating and and Hawke, Labor's been pretty pro-free trade. Labor's been about economic deregulation and, and, you know, some people would even call that neoliberalism. So I think this is a step away from that that kind of view for for Labor under, uh, I believe, Jason Clare is the the opposition trade spokesperson at the moment. Um, You know, let's not put too much uh, emphasis on it because uh, Australia has already opened up its economy pretty much completely uh, and so there's not too much free trade left to be done, you'd argue. I mean, we have a free trade agreement with our two largest trading partners, China and America. Uh, You know, future free trade agreements, if they happen, seem to be focused around more preferential multilateral trade kind of things where we have the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a good example where it was really a lot about intellectual property and trade and services um, and there were some very, very nasty clauses in there about investor state dispute resolution which might have removed Australia's sovereignty on certain issues. So um, I think Labor's in general politically less inclined to back the kind of free trade bandwagon and maybe that reflects the problem that have started to emerge in the global economy in the recent decade or so? I think it's they're trying to reflect and uh, get on board with the scepticism that a lot in the electorate now have around free trade agreements and that uh, it's just kind of the panacea to our economic problems. Well, I mean, I think this is partly the fault of the people who have been proponents of free trade agreements because they've been claiming that these FTAs will be a panacea. And of course, they're not. 80% of the Australian economy remains domestic. And yeah, we do have a small open uh, free trading economy by and large. But uh, if you look at where the growth in the future of Australia is going to come from, it's probably going to come as much from the domestic side of things as it is going to come from exports. And and so, you know, while we obviously need to trade as, as a nation, we also need to, to look at other aspects of productivity, for example. And the, the Productivity Commission's um, done a bit of work on that, you know, and I, and I think th- this goes to there's some bigger philosophical problems about where the discipline of economics is at in 2017. Yes, which is a whole other topic. Yeah, so we'll yeah, let's leave that, that aside one. for <laughs> now, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but we will come back to it one day. Ben, thank you so much for coming in and chatting once again about federal politics. Thanks, Amy. And I'm delighted now to have with me on the phone from uh, New Haven, Connecticut, I have Emma Shortis. Hi, Emma. Hi. Thanks so much for joining me uh, and uh, we're really excited to be able to talk with you about something that's 
breaking right now. Uh, and uh, it's to do with Trump and those who have been involved in his campaign. Um, we have seen just recently that uh, Robert Mueller, who has been charged with looking into um, the ties uh, between Russia and the Trump campaign, uh, he has started to progress those um, that investigation and then also uh, to start... Um, proceedings against a, a few key people. Could you share with us the latest on that? Yeah, look, it's been a pretty crazy day. It's been really difficult to keep up with all these developments as they come out. But, but basically, as I understand it, you're right that Mueller issued some indictments. So he's charged Paul Manafort, who was basically the campaign chairman for Trump for a little while, and his associate, Rick Gates. And I think, I mean, a lot of people are getting a little bit carried away with, with what that means in terms of Russia and collusion. It seems at the moment at least like a kind of classic get them on tax fraud, um, which is a pretty common story. So they're being charged with laundering tens of millions of dollars in foreign income and basically lying to the tax office and the FBI about where that came from. But the crucial point is, I guess, that a lot of that money came from Ukraine, which is now a, a pro Kremlin pro-Russian government. So there's that. And then it was also revealed today that um, somebody called George Papadopoulos, who was an early foreign policy advisor to Trump, and who originally there were all these questions around because people were kind of thinking, why is this very junior person who doesn't seem qualified to be a foreign policy advisor, why is he there? And I guess the thinking is that it's because he, in fact, was, was very connected um, to, in particular, a Russian professor, um, who he knew had ties to the Kremlin, to the Russian government, and, and was working for Trump at the time. And it turns out he was actually arrested back in July and has been cooperating with the investigation. So there's lots of questions swirling around what else he knew and what else he's told this investigation. So I think this is only the, the tip of the iceberg. Yes, and what we have seen uh, in the latest reporting, particularly on The Guardian, uh, is that Papadopoulos in a meeting where Trump was present, uh, suggested and boasted of his connections to Russia and that he could help organise a meeting with Putin. Uh, it's possible he was just being verbose and potentially uh, very overconfident in his importance and ties there. But there are um, those rumblings that had already been in the background about uh, Russia ties with the Trump campaign. And then obviously uh, Paul Manafort's strong connections with the Ukraine uh, and those charges, which, you know, when you read them out, it's uh, money laundering, tax evasion, failure to register as agents for foreign interests, as well as conspiracy to defraud the US government, seem pretty serious to the extent that uh, they're pleading not guilty and a federal judge has ordered Manafort and Gates to be confined to their homes and a set bail at $10 million for Manafort and $5 million for Gates. So there is quite a lot of drama happening um, just around those charges, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. These, these two men are looking at up to 20 years in prison for, for the crimes that they're charged with and from from what I can tell, as you said from the indictment the, the evidence is pretty strong, particularly around uh, money laundering and the indictment I, I think was uncharacteristically detailed in that sense so Mueller is, is letting them know that he's got a lot on them and I, and I think 
also suggesting that he's got a lot more. And, and it seems like that actually maybe what he's trying to do is to get Manafort in particular to talk and to talk about what the other people on the campaign, other more senior people on the campaign were doing. Because, of course, we, we know, for example, that Don Jr. was was at least emailing people about setting up meetings and was very excited about potential dirt on, on Hillary Clinton. So I think that it's, it's pretty likely that this goes higher. Indeed. And what about Jared Kushner and uh, his links as well and involvement in this? Has there been any suggestion that he's tied uh, to these key people? Look, not specifically yet, as far as I know. I mean, it's entirely possible in the last 20 minutes something else has been revealed. But we do know that, that Kushner was in uh, meetings with all of these people. There's, there's photos um, circulating on Twitter of, of Trump having meetings with Manafort and Papadopoulos and, and Kushner being there too. So there's nothing specific, as far as I know, linking Kushner to, to this. But I, I guess what I would say is that there may not be a kind of smoking gun that li- links people directly to the Kremlin and, and perhaps what Mueller is looking for is more um, circumstantial evidence of uh, Manafort, for example, saying we talked about this and Kushner knew about this before the Clinton emails were released or, or something of that nature. So I think it will only get murkier. Indeed. And Emma, I know um, last time we spoke, you were here in Melbourne uh, doing your PhD at the University of Melbourne, and now you're over there at Yale, uh, which is very exciting as uh, the Fox International Fellow for 2017-18 at the Macmillan Centre. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective as, I guess, an outsider coming into this American culture, um, as well as, you know, observing US politics a bit more closely uh, in proximity at least, what's your experience been like over there? Yeah, look, I mean, it's pretty wild being here um, at kind of, I guess, at the centre of all of this. We're pretty close to, to Washington, D.C. But I, I think actually what's, what struck me is that from the outside, I, I expected, particularly in, in the so-called um, liberal East Coast bubble, which I'm very much in, it's very much a thing, um, I expected there to be a more kind of existential crisis amongst the kind of the liberal elite in the U.S. I thought Trump might have prompted a real um, crisis and, and rethink of the way that politics is done and the way that they think about um, particularly inequality. And, and I have to say that I'm, I'm surprised to, to not have encountered more of that kind of existential crisis. Like the sort of general consensus here is that Trump will probably go away, but the way that we do things will, will go back to normal and we'll be able to continue on as we have and as we might have under a Clinton presidency, which has which has been really um, striking and I think probably won't be the way things play out. No, well, particularly given we saw so many protests and, you know, left politics being mobilised uh, as Trump was elected, it is surprising that it hasn't really gone further than just a reaction against Trump. Um, and as you say, that it hasn't really generated a new kind of politics, perhaps. And that's something that we've been wondering is, you know, the Repu- uh, sorry, the Democrats really need to rebuild and offer an alternative and recognise the significant uh, poverty issues and also um, how race interacts with poverty in America. Uh, is that really the case that the Democrats in particular, um, you know, have kind of been focusing perhaps more on uh, the, what Trump is doing and reacting to the Republicans rather than perhaps rebuilding their own side? 
Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I think the Democrats themselves are really struggling with that. So so in the, the real um, elite, sort of DC elite, I think there hasn't been that that rethink. I think the, the narrative is, is going that, you know, Clinton won the popular vote, which she absolutely did, and, and with some tweaks here and there, they can return to the presidency. But I think elsewhere and kind of outside the beltway or outside the bubble, there is quite a dramatic rethink. And and things like universal health care, which was basically un- politically unsayable a, a few years ago, would have been political suicide for a Democrat to talk about universal health care. People outside DC especially um, and, and the less kind of establishment Democrats are talking about that quite openly and, and gaining a lot of currency. So I think it's entirely possible that we will see a real change in the way that Democrats do politics and a real change in progressives um, progressive thinking here, but it's it's not happening where I am, I don't think. That's really interesting. Well, we did see the Bernie Sanders effect and, uh, you know, even though he isn't necessarily a Democrat himself, he is a socialist, um, but ran in that contest and uh, it was interesting to see him pulling Hillary Clinton and her policies further to the left. Do you think that Bernie will still have some kind of influence um, now and into the future? Um, I, I think he, if not him, his policies certainly will. He, he's had a huge effect here, again, on, on making things like universal health care something that can be talked about and, and aimed for. But it is, I, I mean, I find it so hilarious that Americans think that Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Uh, I know he, he's called himself that in the past, but his, his policies, I think, to Australians would be, would be pretty familiar. They're, they are they are left, certainly, but he, he's not a radical left, as we would understand it. Um, but he is still having a huge impact, especially on the Democrats and, and how they do things, again, outside of the real um, establishment DC types. And that's where the fight will be, I think. The, the fight to sort of wrest control of the Democrats will be around that um, Sanders wing and people who are inspired by that and then the more establishment people who think we can just tinker with the system and, and we'll be okay again. Well, uh, that's going to be certainly something to watch and I'm sure that one's going to be a bit of a slow burner. Uh, but as we have just been intimating uh, the developments around some of Trump's key advisors and campaign managers are quite rapid in their development. So I'm sure more will progress as the day continues. I know it's nighttime over there, so perhaps things might die down for us during the day. Uh, but do you have any further uh, thoughts or predictions on what might happen next there, Emma? Look, I'd be pretty loath to make any predictions, but I, I do think today is, is definitely the start of something. This this day will be historically really significant for the Trump presidency, and, and we'll just be really waiting to see how Trump is going to react. I don't think he's going to go anywhere without a big fight, and it will be the, the potential for him to do some serious damage, I think, is, is pretty high. So, yeah, who knows, I guess, is my answer to that. That's a very fair answer. I certainly wouldn't expect anyone to be able to make uh, a crystal ball uh, gazed and highly accurate prediction. But thank you so much, Emma Shortus, for joining us today and for bearing with us whilst we uh, dealt with the phone problems. Oh, that's my pleasure. No problem. 
and that was Emma Shortis, who is the Fox International Fellow at Yale University. She is an Australian, um, currently studying a PhD and undertaking research into the Antarctica. And I highly recommend uh, you check her out on Twitter and look into her research areas because um, she has some fascinating work going on at the moment. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM with me, Amy Mullins. And I promised, and I have now delivered, uh, that we've got Rachel Botsman, wonderful uh, author and thinker and researcher. And she joins me in the studio to talk about her new book, Who Can You Trust? How Technology Brought Us Together and Why It Could Drive Us Apart. Thank you, Rachel, for joining us today. Good morning. Who can you trust? Question mark. Yes. <laughs> Big question Big mark. Big question mark. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a huge problem, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm. This question of trust. And I liked uh, in your book that we're, you're really um, trying to define trust, mm. first of all, because that's a really difficult thing. And when you ask the question, what does trust mean to you? You do get a whole range of responses. So perhaps we could start there so that we can then utilize that definition that we get to in yeah. all of the examples and the way that it's changed. Yeah, I find trust so interesting because it's, it's one of those words we use a lot. I don't trust this person. I trust this person. And then when you ask, people, well, what does it really mean? Um, it's very hard to define. And so that's one of the things. And, and I think the, the most helpful thing is, is that trust isn't, it's not a communication thing. It's not an attribute. It's actually a process that people go through. And whenever you're asking someone to trust, um, they're in a, a known state, if you like, and you're asking them to place their faith in something unknown. So um, first time you get in a self-driving car, um, placing your money in a bank account, faith in a total stranger. And so what trust is, the way I define it, is a confident relationship to the unknown. Um, it's not actually knowing the outcome of things. And so it's it's wonderful alchemy of, of vulnerability and expectations. And, and it's so important to society because it's what enables us to place our faith in, in institutions and systems. But it's also what enables us to take risks and to move forward. So when trust starts to wobble, um, whether it be in a company or in the nature of individual and society, it's, it's fascinating, but but worrying. Yes. And as you say, uh, and you have said uh, verbally, uh, that trust is an elusive concept, but yet we depend on it for our lives to function. So mm. trust is really essential to our ec- economic lives, but also our, as you have suggested, our relationships mm. with other human beings, romantic relationships, regular family-based relationships. So in terms of um, this really invisible but highly important uh, concept of trust, and, and there you're talking about um, this confidence mm. in the unknown. I mean, it's one of the other uh definitions that you've quoted, which I also thought was useful, was um, from Nicholas Luhmann, who wrote, trust is confidence in one's expectations. Mm. Um, And that, to me, kind of has summed up my feelings sometimes when I feel like I am very trusting. I'm like, oh, I'm I'm just kind of feeling really comfortable with what I expect out of this. Mm, mm, no, it's absolutely. I mean, you talk about sort of um, the role of trust and I think it's really helpful to think of it like a social glue that really ties people together. And um, you look at the history of trust, it, it's very innate, innate, innate to human beings because you know, it was what enabled us to cooperate and to collaborate and have those social connections. But it is true. I think, you know, you think the one thing to remember is trust is really contextual. So what you're talking about is sometimes you're in situations where you understand why people trust you. And you know, there's other times where you feel a bit wobbly and, and you lack confidence around something. And it's like, you know, I can 
hopefully I'm trustworthy to write a book or an article, but not a great driver. Um, so I, I think this is really important that we tend to talk about trust very generally. And, and this is very dangerous in terms of the conversation that's happening around. I don't trust the media. I don't trust government to do what? You know, there's certain things that we do trust them to do. And there are certain people. And so one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that I feel like this narrative that we have where trust is in crisis and we don't trust anyone, what that actually does is it creates a very dangerous vacuum for conspiracy theories and for different voices and for people who understand how to speak to feelings over facts and so even amplifying the anger around distrust I don't think is a healthy thing that is going on at the moment. Mm. And one of the um, conceptual graphics in your book which is really useful um, and which I guess is critical to this uh, the description of how trust works is that you start with something that's known, that's where you're coming from, and there's an unknown at mm. the end. And as you've said, um, there's a leap, a trust mm. leap, and within that leap there's often inherently risk. There's very few times where there isn't a risk involved. Um, in most things there'll be some level of risk. So with when we're making trust leaps, and one of those is, as you say, going into a um, – a driverless car and, you know, hoping that it all goes well and it doesn't crash. Um, what are some of the other trust leaps that we're making that we may not even realise that we're, we're taking at the moment? Yeah. I mean, just on the driverless car, I think it's funny. People say, oh, people won't trust driverless cars. People won't trust humans. Yeah, exactly. You know, like this is, and once a leap has happened, it, it happens remarkably fast. That's what's interesting. So you're right. So um, the line between sort of the known and the unknown is risk. Um, it's the management of uncertainty. And in all every day we take about we take risks and we shouldn't think about them too much because we actually wouldn't get anything mm. done. But the level of risk is different for, for different people, for different age groups, for different backgrounds. And some trust leaps are pretty minor. You wouldn't even think about them. So, you know, if you give up paper billing and you switched online, that's a trust leap. Um, some are pretty significant. So first time you use your credit card details on a website uh, using eBay and ATM. All these things, first time you get on a plane, these are trust leaps. Um, and sometimes products or services fail because society isn't ready to take that leap. Um, so elevators are really interesting lifts um, that when they were first introduced, people didn't like the idea of a driverless elevator. So they put human beings in there. Yeah. All right. Is, that's why they're there. That's why they were there. <laughs> and then they removed them again. Yeah. Um, but so I think it's really interesting how technology and the designers actually build these things to enable our trust. Um, and I think what's happening today is the reason why we feel so much change, we feel like we're moving at this frightening speed is that technology is enabling, but it's also asking us to leap mm. faster and higher than ever before. So it's not that a trust leap is a new thing. So um, when we switch from bartering to money, that was a huge trust leap. It's just the pace of these leaps and, and how fast they're happening is is. It's, it's quite frightening in many ways. Yeah, and a really good example that you highlight is the sharing economy because mm. that is a huge leap. You know, for me, that was a very big leap. The first time I used Airbnb was like, oh, my gosh, I'm – even though I, I rented out the house, I wasn't renting a room in someone's house, mm. it was still really scary that, well, I mean, it's their house and they have the keys and, you know, how trusting am I given they're a complete stranger? Did it work out? 
Uh, it did. There's only one time where it kind of didn't, but yeah. that that was more about do we trust each other? It wasn't necessarily like yeah. It was more um, expectations, yeah. right? Yeah, and and. I mean, and also they were Scottish, so I think there was a barrier, a cultural barrier at the beginning because they were very um, – there was a, like, heavy accent and, you know, mm. and they were speaking more Scottish than English. <laughs> so that was probably more of the problem. But I actually love Scotland. It's my, one of my favourite countries. So then I did get over that and I did yeah. leap and it was great in the end. But, yeah, it, that was, I felt, like a very personal mm. challenge almost of getting past the real uncomfort, discomfort that I had around being in someone else's else's place but then you think about it and you're in a hotel well I mean how different is it it is different. I mean, it's it's more than two million people um, use Airbnb every night, which is astonishing. And um, you know, I, the, my first book was on the sharing economy, and I remember saying to my editor, "I'm going to open with this story about this company called Airbnb." He was like, "Don't do that. It will be it will be shut down before the <laughs> book is out." Um, but you know, the interesting thing is, I use Airbnb a lot, and for me, initially, it was about trust. Um, but I'm always amazed at how much I feel like I know about the person before they come into my home. And I think I've got a lot smarter and wiser about the questions that I ask. But when it falls down, particularly when I'm a guest, it's actually misalignment of expectations. Mm. And so I find it really fascinating now that Emmy and me are trying to encourage hosts to say, here's the two things that are fantastic about my place, but here's the one thing that you may not like. You know, it's a busy road. I say there's a possum in our back garden. Um, and that's, that's actually a good thing because you're yeah. aligning expectations. And, and that's um, trust. There's a, this amazing quote, this guy called Diego Gambetta. He says, trust has two enemies, not one, bad character and poor information. And technology can do a lot to address that second thing. Yeah, she can mm. do amazing things around bad character. But, um, yeah, this is what I find interesting is how the places and the people can feel familiar through the technology. Yeah. And it's also that rating system which gives people a lot more security around character. Mm. And if you're almost trusting other people to rate these people honestly and evaluate them for you so that you can then trust them, put your trust in them by choosing them and their house. Their house. Yeah, it's kind of, and this is this notion that I talk about in the book of d- distributed trust, that um, it's really about the wisdom of friends and friends, so to speak. But, um, and I'm the first one to say that the rating systems were very clunky to begin with, and they've still got a long way to go. You know, mm-hmm. I give you five, you give me five. Yeah. Um, but Airbnb's made progress in that they're blind, you know, so you don't see until they've posted theirs. And they're starting to get more contextual. So, um, you know, you don't just write a five, you write about cleanliness and communication and accuracy and um, value for money. And, and so they're becoming more useful. So... I think we'll look back at these, you know, starred systems that we started with and think, how on earth did we rely on them? Yeah. Like, you know, you think about getting on a car. I was thinking about last night, I got on the yeah. car like midnight with an Uber driver and all I had was a little picture and his star rating. So, yeah, and as the book isn't it, it's not all positive it does point no. out many of the flaws of this new world as well exactly yeah i do have those moments as where i'm going well someone's just you know in their car picking me up from my place so mm. yeah and i don't know who they are some of them are really lovely yeah <laughs> some you're like oh i'm not quite sure it's you know and i think this was the thing that i realized is that um there's plenty of trust out there. Yeah. In fact, we give our trust away very, very easily. And, you know, when I was in Upper Dummy and I got in a car with a guy named Prince at 2am, you know, like, and I thought of telling my mum this and she'd yeah. be like, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> 
Exactly. And and you mentioned their distributed trust. Yeah. Let's go through the evolution of trust because you talk about local trust, institutional trust, and now distributed trust. Can we go through that historical evolution of trust and how that has changed? Yeah. I promise you it's actually interesting, the history of trust. But um, so the the way I think of trust is it's like energy. So it, it doesn't it doesn't disappear or get destroyed. It changes form. And so for a long time in, in society, we had local trust. And it's just think of us living in villages and communities where we kind of knew everyone else. Um, and if you did something bad, you get a bad reputation. And trust was very personal. It was very face-to-face. Now, when we wanted to move, when we moved to cities and larger towns and where we wanted to internationally trade, for good reason, we invented institutional trust. Um, we invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries like real estate agents. Um, we invented things like insurance. And this was an amazing thing in terms of progress in the Industrial Revolution. Now, what's happening is that it's not those two things are going away. It's that there is a third form rising up that I call distributed trust. So that this trust that used to flow largely upwards, so to a CEO, to an expert, to a regulator, to a leader, is now flowing sideways um, to colleagues, peers, neighbours, friends. And a lot of people, the way they get their heads around this is, is you say, well, think about the last holiday you book or the last bo- book that you bought online or an item of clothing and, and what influenced that decision. And they'll probably say it was some review or some rating system. That's distributed mm-hmm. trust. But it has much deeper roots than this because, um, for example, Brexit, when they looked at Ipsos did a big study on what influenced people's vote, people were saying like their friends or a stranger on the bus have more influence over an economist. And so that's why the consequences of this, they're not all good because, you know, you do want to go to the doctor sometimes and not listen to mum's net. Um, there is, it's very hard yeah. to sort out misinformation and the truth, um, facts and fiction online. And, and so while it democratizes voices, it can also put power into the hands of you know, the wrong people in the wrong places. Exactly. And you do, just as you referenced there, Brexit, um, you mentioned in the book about this discussion um, that, you know, some really prominent politicians said, I'm a bit sick of experts yeah. in this debate and facts, you know. Yeah. And there were a lot of contested facts around how much, um, you know, the healthcare system would cost under, you know, leaving um, or remaining. And, and you do, as you've just said, talked about the Ipsos uh, Mori poll. And it, it's not that surprising that nurses are some of the most trusted um, people in professions, uh, coming up at 93%. But as you've said, uh, there's been really huge declines in a couple of areas. Uh, and since that poll has started in 1983, uh, at that time, 85% of people trusted the clergy mm. to tell the truth. By January 2016, you say uh, that, uh, let me get this right, the clergy had fallen to 18, had fallen 18 percentage points mm. and was the eighth most trusted overall. And you talk about these kind of events mm. where, for example, if you think about the Catholic Church and the institutionalized abuse of children that has come out where, you know, it hadn't been reported and it hadn't been followed up in many instances, that just one uh, event can then catalyze other uh, mistrusts mm. of institutions. Um, and that's just one example. Could you share more about how that can really undermine trust and then affect our behavior? Mm. So these... 
these major trust breaches, so that the abuse in the Catholic Church, and then uh, it's not just the the, the abuse; it's, it's the lack of accountability, um, and many people turning a blind eye. And time time is a very important factor when it comes to trust. So if people have known something and they've kept it secret for a long time, and this creates a generational scar. And so the incident may have happened. 20, 30, even 50 years ago, um, but it can have a very long-term effect, damaging effect on trust. Because what it does is it erodes our faith in the people in the system. It erodes our faith in their integrity, in their intentions. And that becomes a disease. Um, It becomes a virus and it's spread very fast and it's very contagious. And you get to a point where um, the erosion of faith, they start to lose legitimacy, these, these institutions, and people start to fear what else could go wrong. Um, and so this loss of integrity and this lack of accountability, they are real enemies. They are, they are incredibly dangerous when it comes to trust. And you can look at what happened in the Catholic Church. You can look at what's going on in politics. You can look at what happens after the financial crisis. And it's this feeling that people in positions of power aren't held to the same rules as everybody else where you see a lot of fear and suspicion and fatigue and anger. Um, and that's what's rising up now. And we're seeing um, sort of come to an ugly head in, 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 our politi- in, in many ways in the political world. Yes. And you do mention things like the fact that just one leader or CEO in the global financial crisis mm. was jailed mm. for their behavior. Mm. And a lot of them got exit salaries and uh, or, or just no repercussions. They were bailed out by the US government. Um, and that yeah, that, that mechanism of, uh, transparency, which would, you, you would expect that in an internet age where, you know, you're having, you had WikiLeaks, which was prominent prior, you had the Panama Papers, you, you constantly see whistleblowers, mm. um, you know, revealing these big things, but we still see this constant erosion of institutional trust because there's, there may be some, you know, light shone on things and oxygen given to big problems, but the accountability is really no longer there, not to the same extent that that we feel that we had Mm. before. Why is there that lack of accountability now? I think it's always been there. It's just amplified. And, um, I mean, this is one of the big points is that institutional trust where it's held by a privileged few, it's opaque, it sits behind closed doors. It just wasn't designed for the digital age. So it's not that many of these behaviours are new, it's just that we find out. And when we find out, that message gets amplified. Um, So, But there's also this interesting thing where we are asking for transparency and I fell into this trap where you go, yeah, more transparency, more trust. And that's not actually the case. So I think institutions should have be able to keep some things hidden if it's to the public's benefit. So I was talking to um, Andy Hordain, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England, and he was saying, you know, during the financial cra- crash, if I'd revealed everything, being totally transparent, there would have been complete fire, it would have been financial meltdown. That was my job mm. to decide what to withhold. So transparency and trust, they're not brother and sister. You kind of given up on trust once you need things to be entirely transparent. So I think, again, I think it's actually a sign of the times that we are asking for more transparency, where I think what we're actually asking for is, is more accountability, the confidence that if the CEO of Volkswagen knew what was going on, which he did, why does he walk away with a multi-million dollar payout? 
it's not okay. Like if, if something happened on your watch and you were aware of it, you should pay that fine. Mm, absolutely. And you do also talk about cultural differences mm. in building trust. And I found that really interesting um, with the China example and uh, the concept of Guangxi. So mm. I'd really love to hear more about that and your experience because you did go to China and experience mm. that firsthand. Yeah, the, <laughs> I went to China several times. The, the China chapter is is interesting and quite frightening as well. Um, so um, it talks about how there's a couple of issues in China and that, that trust is in a very, very tight circle. So if you've ever done business in China, you know, you go through about two weeks of meetings and dinners and you think, when are we going to get to the real work? And that is, that's the work, right? They're, mm. they're figuring you out. Um, and then the other problem is that they, they don't have traditional credit. Many people don't have traditional credit histories. There's high rates of, of fraud and, and fake goods. And so... Um, the Chinese government have started this system called a social citizen score um, that by 2020, every citizen will have a trust score, so to speak. Now, the economic argument you can kind of understand, which is that this is going to make a more trustworthy society and hold people more accountable. But when you actually dig in, it's so 1984. Mm. Um, so it's not just, you know, whether you pay your loans, it's, uh, you know, what you buy online, it's what you say online, it's who you're connected to. And the thing that I really found hard about writing that chapter is that, A, your transgressions follow you for the rest of your life. And the penalties don't relate to the crime, right? So if your trust score goes below a certain level, you know, they've just banned more than 6 million Chinese from taking planes. You can't apply for certain jobs. Your kids can't go to certain schools. And the thing that was finding I found so hard about writing that piece is that, you know, it's very easy to point your Western finger at China and go, that's never going to happen here. And then as I started to dig, I was like, oh, we are not that far off. Mm. Um, we are in this culture of surveillance and w we just don't know what's going on. Like, it's just that it doesn't have a name yet. And so it was a very confronting piece of the book. Right. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, you know, you live in Australia and in the UK, so you have experience of both, um, you know, political and 10 areas. years in New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, you would know as well that you know, particularly in Australia, when we had that metadata mm. debate around, you know, we're going to give more and more of our metadata to the government. I mean, a lot of the ministers didn't even know what metadata was, which was a bit disturbing. But we have constantly through COAG and through the federal government's changes that were bipartisan, um, you know, that we're giving away our privacy rights and we're not worried or concerned to the extent that we should be. Mm. Um, is that going to lead to further erosion of trust between uh, citizens and governments when more of these kind of things happen where we see our data might be misused? I actually think we're already seeing it, but I think it's towards the tech companies where we're realising guilty that we've let convenience trump trust you know like i use gmail i use google i know they're collecting that data right i use facebook and they're making a lot of money off this data um and so i i actually don't think the solution lies in government no offense but to your point i just don't think that there are some ministers but it, it's not a problem for traditional regulation to solve um i think we need something a lot stronger here like in um just got back from europe and um gdpr the, the general data protection uh, ruling has just gone through and it's it's strong um i mean it's it's really in the favor of the consumer in terms of your right to delete your right to ask these companies for what they have on you so this woman just wrote this piece in the guardian about uh, asking tinder 
Tinder for her data. She thought she'd get about 20 pages back on mm. her search. She got 800 pages back. And what she was amazed at and what people are always staggered about is they think, oh, it's just on Tinder. And they don't think, well, actually, it's all the photos on Instagram and it's her geolocation. So they know where she went on dates. They know how long that date lasted. They know whether she took an Uber ride there and back. Mm. And so I think this is we've given this data away um, very easily. I mean, I do generally I know it's cliche, but think privacy is dead. But it's it's. If we want more control, we can't let convenience trump trust. We can't just swipe and accept and share and click. We have to slow down and actually ask, what are we, what are we giving away here? Mm. So then if we're looking at the positives and negatives of technology and the increasing use of social media, because you also talk about the fact that a lot of uh, American users rely on Facebook for mm. their news. It's, you know, the majority of Americans' primary source of news. More than 45%. Yeah. Frightening. So, I mean, when we're, when there's such a reliance upon social media, what is the solution? Is it just to, you know, step back from social media and not engage? Or is there, are there other solutions like those mm. European reforms? Or what could we do? It's a, so it's really hard. I mean, people keep saying, okay, Facebook needs to take more responsibility. And they, they are. It's slow. Um, they're not going to because then they're a media company, right? As soon as they start editing and curating and they're very insistent that they're just a neutral platform. Um, Which uses an algorithm. It uses an algorithm, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think that's the problem is that it's the amount of information and it's the misinformation and it's whose role is it now to edit that? And you could you could say to users, well, you need to take more personal responsibility. But I, you know, I struggle sometimes to discern what is fake news and what is real news and... Um, and what is just biased news as well, because there's more of that than fake news on, on the platform. I think we need tools. I think it's actually, it's not a top-down process. It actually has to be in the system where you have more tools as a user. So in the same way you use spell check or people use Grammarly or whatever it is, you have a quick way to assess um, where has this piece of content come from? Who's paid for it? Who is the journalist? Is it a trustworthy source? And it's almost like a layer that appears. So I don't think it's a question of disengaging and I don't think it's a question of that the platform, whatever it is, takes more control. I know it's also contentious and it's a problem from a business model perspective, but I'd love to see some of the traditional media outlets just divorce Facebook and Google. I, you know, I, I, if there was one that was brave enough to stand up and say, look, I know this is really going to hurt our search. I know this is going to really hurt our distribution channel, but we really value our integrity and our content. So if you want us, come directly to us. And I think this is, you know, you're seeing with the New York Times, best quarter in its history in terms of pay subscriptions. It probably a pendulum swing because of Trump and what's going on there. But if we really want great media content that we can trust, we have to pay for it. Um, and so, again, I think there is there is a personal accountability on this. But I, I would love one of the media institutions to stand up and say, it's a divorce, right? <laughs> Follow us, but we're now going to stand independent, truly independent. Mm. Well, The Guardian seems to be moving more towards that with a reliance on membership um, and getting donations that way. And I know they're also seeking, you know, philanthropic uh, mm-hmm. donations so that they're trying to have some level of separation from advertising. And that's really difficult. 
difficult in an online environment. Sixty percent of the advertising revenue budget goes to Facebook. Mm. I mean, like the the head of the Guardian's actually come out and said, like, this is the reason why they're bleeding money. Mm. And so it's a it's a real challenge. We have two billion people on there. I mean, say sixty five percent of adults look at Facebook every single day. Um, you know, how do you how do you break up from that? enormous influence over distribution and news consumption. Yeah, it's a big question. And you mentioned um, the Trump and US election, and that's one of the things that you say um, is that the election was a contest that really came down to trust Mm. um, and that people, the voters, didn't trust Hillary Clinton. Mm. Obviously, there would be gendered elements around women and trust. Mm. Um, But I'd really like to know further about your thoughts on that situation because it was, to some people, particularly academics, quite shocking that (laughs) Donald Trump won. Mm. Not as shocking to me. Um, But I'd just like to know what, how you think trust played a role in the US uh, election campaign that we've just seen. Yeah, I mean, um, I find it staggering that 53% of female white voters voted for Trump. I mean, that's staggering. And in some of these instances, like, what the weird thing about trust is we want to give it to someone. And, but we generally vote against things for, versus for things. So I don't think people were voting for Trump with their vote, some people. Um, it was, it was actually a vote, not even just against Hillary, but against the establishment. And I, I worked for the Clintons for three years, um, and I'm reading her book at the moment. And the thing that really strikes me is that she knew that she was in a reality show. She knew that she had a trust problem. And you could credit her saying it was her integrity, but she said, I cannot stoop to that level. And what was so hard to her is, you know, the momentum of Bernie Sanders and the momentum of Trump is they were speaking to feelings. They weren't speaking to facts. Um, you know, people will place their trust on things that they understand. You know, I can remember Trump, Mexican war, ISIS and jobs manufacturing, mm. right? Like that's Sanders, um, uh, free education, single payer health care. I can't remember the last one. I can't remember anything from Clinton's policy. And when you read that book, it's actually fascinating in terms of what her policies. And I was like, I had no idea. I had no mm. idea. And Harvard just came out with a study where they looked at news coverage um, and they found that, and this was all outlets. So, ten percent of news coverage during the election was was actually based on policy. The rest was all personal. And so, how can trust break through? How can the most trustworthy break, person break through? The most qualified, the most competent, because it's 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 just it's just playing into people's fears and. And we, you know, I do, I do not like Trump. I despise Trump. I can't even find a word for it. Um, and it was hard holding it back in the book. But what I had to admit is that he he represents an intoxicating form of transparency that is understanding, understandable and meaningful to many people. So it was an election that unfortunately came down to trust. And I think people's mistrust of Hillary, it was partly a gender issue. But I think it was more that she and the Clintons and the Bushes, they were part of this long history that people had just had enough with. Mm. The insiders, so to speak, that are part of those institutions that we no longer trust as Mm. we did before. Yeah. And look at the slogans like drain the swamp, take back control. Like all these things are about taking power from someone or something that had power and putting it so apparently back into the hands of the people. Mm. Whereas stronger together, it just didn't mean anything. It felt weak and anemic so um, yes and I'm with her 
Well, I had an issue with that one because yeah. that's all about her. Mm. I mean, I know, yeah, she came from Beyonce. Do you know it came from? No, she was, she was singing in at the end. She said, I'm with her and everyone thought it was wonderful. Yeah. And, and so it became this big thing. But yeah, it was, that felt like it was, I'm with Clinton, uh, Hillary, but, um, there it's 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 a really interesting read but i confess because i went in very very skeptical but um yeah and rachel i know you've been focusing uh, around a whole range of technologies Mm. and you do mention something which is quite complicated but i I am interested (laughs) in it so i'm going to bring it up Uh um i I know know where you're going blockchain (laughs) the b word (laughs) yeah um please could you help us understand what this is and why it's important to know what it is? No, no, I'm joking. No? I thought you were going to go to artificial intelligence, no, which, I find, which is a whole other topic. But no, no. no, so the blockchain, so just two basic things. So mm. first of all, Bitcoin and blockchain are separate things, mm. right? So Bitcoin is um, the currency, the cryptocurrency that um, this uh, anonymous person called Satoshi Nakamoto, he built the blockchain so that you could transfer digital currency directly. So we could transfer currency without the banks. Now, Bitcoin's interesting, but it's the blockchain underneath that really has the power and the potential. Um, the easiest way to think of it is like, you know how accountants used to have those physical ledgers? Mm. And if I gave you money... Um, we'd both have an entry and they would sit in books. Um, well, that hasn't really evolved much. That's still how banking, traditional banking works. The blockchain changes all that because it's a public ledger that is shared amongst a network of people. And every time someone transfers, it doesn't have to be money. It can be an asset. So I transfer a line, land title. I transfer ownership of a piece of art, whatever it is it gets registered in the blockchain. So it gets registered in these blocks. And the reason why it's called a chain is that once it's in there, it can't be removed. So it's an immutable ledger. And so people are talking about how it's going to transform trust because I think it will transform value. That's the really interesting way to think about it. So if you think about how the internet transformed how we um, transfer information, the blockchain will, over the next decade, transform how we transfer all kinds of value and assets. So you won't need lots of intermediaries. You may not need a real estate agent. Um, if you want to place a bet, you may not need a bookie. Um, it becomes really interesting, actually, when you get to books and um, information because you could buy that chapter directly off an author and make a micropayment through the blockchain. So, so just think of it as a big public digital ledger where you can see the transactions and they're verified by a network. Wow, that's really quite scary to think of. It's like there's not one kind of centralised person or thing that's responsible for this ledger. No, I mean, that's that's the whole idea yeah. is that it's decentralised. It's actually not scary. I mean, it's it's, it's highly transparent yeah. um, and it's, it's decentralised. So, um, But th- there's also a difference between public property blockchains mm. so ethereum is a public blockchain and then um private blockchains so the banks have their own blockchains now um, mm. and the reason why they have their blockchains is because it's a more efficient way for them to transfer assets but um yeah now there's there's these things called dapps um which are like apps built on the blockchain um, <laughs> but you you'll you'll see it in about i think five years and i think right. the first way most people will feel it is is with something called a smart contract and so a smart contract is like a contract but it's code so um just a simple example we could have a bet tomorrow um whether trump was going to be impeached right and we could we could put those odds into a contract and we wouldn't need any lawyers involved and then tomorrow it could automate the payout 
um, based on our agreement. So mm. what I find really interesting about it is it, it kind of comes full circle because it's back to that local trust. It's back to that personal trust, but it's it's through a machine. Yes, and also perhaps makes some lawyers and accountants a bit nervous. (laughs) You still need lawyers. I mean, my husband's a lawyer, but um, you still need lawyers to actually – you still have to program law into the code. You still Mm. have to have a legal understanding. I think if I was an accountant or an auditor, I'd be extremely worried Mm. um, because here, you know, have a ledger of transactions. So Wow. Um, And just to close out this really interesting discussion, Rachel, I want to understand from your perspective why you personally got so interested in trust. Um, I know. I asked myself, no. I mean, first of all, it's, it's, it's a thread that runs across, I think, so many important things and critical things um, in society. As a parent, um, I have become really obsessed with questions around how my children place their trust in technology and the ethical and commercial intentions of, of the corporate masters that sit behind these things. Um, and then I just think it's... It really is our most precious asset, and I just don't think we understand it enough or take care of it enough. And I think we're starting to see the consequences of of when you just don't value something enough. Um, So, But I am an optimistic person, and I I do think we will get through this. It's just there's going to be a lot of pain and confusion along the way. Yes. Well, it's good that we have your book to uh, make sense of all of this. It certainly has provided me with a framework to think about trust uh, before it seemed like it was out in the ether, a bit invisible and uh, somewhat opaque in Mm. the way that it operates. But I think um, what you're offering here is a great way for people to start to get a grasp on how trust is really operating in their lives and perhaps take a bit more um, control and also feel a bit more secure Mm. perhaps in how trust is operating and we can be more trusting. Yeah, it's made me think, it's made me feel more in control around the decisions I make and and I, as you know, the book is very personal, it's full of a lot of my stories of mistakes I've made and my family's made and and that's I think the way in for a lot of readers. Mm. Thank you so much Rachel for for taking the time, it was great to chat with you. I have the great delight to be able to speak with film director Yariv Moser and he has uh, created this really interesting documentary called Ben-Gurion Epilogue and it's currently screening at the Jewish International Film Festival here in Melbourne and uh, every year the Jewish International Film Festival puts up a whole range of really interesting films, fiction and non-fiction but this one really sparked my interest uh, because it has a really interesting backstory and uh, and since I've been able to watch it, it's just really quite compelling to see. So I'm really glad now to be able to welcome Yariv to the show. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thank you very much. I'm honoured. It's it's my honour uh, to have you, and particularly um, because it is such an interesting story that you've brought uh, to life and obviously a really significant editing job that you had as well. Uh, first of all, I'd really like to hear your story as to how you found uh, not only the visual footage for this documentary but the audio because, uh, as you, as I know, they weren't in the same place 
Uh, yeah, well, I was going to search for something else. I was looking for a, a missing feature film, a fiction film that was done uh, about the, the life story of David Ben-Gurion, Israel's uh, first prime minister and founder. Um, and this fiction film was presumed lost, and I found one copy of it in Jerusalem at the archive. And next to this feature film was a pile of uh, reels of an interview with David Ben-Gurion that no one knew about this interview. And later on, I discovered that it was conducted as research for the script of this feature film. And when we found it, as you said, it was without sound. It was six hours of an interview that no one knew, no one screened before. And we started a very long research till discovering uh, the, the sound recorder, a British Jew who lives in London, uh, 86 years old. And we were uh, fortunate enough that he kept the original sound reels in his possession uh, till donating them to the Ben-Gurion archive in the desert. So uh, the audio was uh, in Israel. Uh, but in a different place, in a different location. And they didn't know that, this, that the image uh, was kept in, uh, in Jerusalem. So we had to take the image and sound and connect them and discover this uh, rare interview with David Ben-Gurion. Well, it's such a brilliant find, particularly for those who are really keen on history and and also just want to see uh, David Ben-Gurion in a different way. Um, it really is quite illuminating to see him uh, out there in his home uh, in a kibbutz, I believe, you know, just post-retirement, post-politics, reflecting on uh, what he did and his life and the key political moments, some of which were very controversial. Uh, when you first watched back um, the audio with the visual, what was most important or striking to you and why did that make you want to make a documentary out of that? Yeah, you know, uh, the first thing, the first impact that I will never forget from watching this uh, interview, uh, the, the time that it took place was 1968, five years uh, after Ben-Gurion resigned from government, and it's one year after the Six-Day War. Israel occupied uh, the territories of uh, Gaza and the West Bank, and uh, Ben-Gurion, you, you hear him, but you can't stop thinking of the reality of our lives in Israel today, but not only in Israel, I must say, of the world as we see it today. Ben-Gurion was sitting back then, and, and this became uh, uh, the main theme of this film, uh, and, and he was uh, talking about his vision and about the future, and about the way he sees the future like a prophet, and uh, you can't stop thinking about our lives today. And not only because of, uh, you know, the moral values and, uh, and the way he sees leadership, um, but because of the political questions, uh, he had a very clear uh, point of view regarding the territories. He was in favor of uh, a full withdrawal, in favor of peace. And this was back then very controversial, very unusual. Uh, but if you think of it today... Uh, you know, uh, if only we, someone would have heard what he had to say back then. That's absolutely right. It is a very stark contrast to the current approach of uh, the government of Israel uh, in relation to Palestine. I, I was really interested in his conception of the state of Israel and what he thought, um, you know, their right was to start it, but also their approach to it, which was that, you know, that 
the people he thought um, were part of the formation of the State of Israel were generally peaceful people and that they were able to defend themselves, but uh, that, that that wasn't often or wasn't really the preferred first option, that they would prefer um, to take a peaceful approach. Now, obviously, that's also a contentious area, but it does seem that um, his approach to, to leadership and also to, um, or at least his hopes that, that he could find some kind of compromise or a way to live peacefully with um, those in Palestine was something that is, you know, quite different from the current approach. Do you think that that uh, is true? Uh, I I agree, and uh, um, that was one of the messages that you feel from Ben Gurion. He's talking, but he's talking through the connection with the with the Bible. He's always quoting from the prophets from the Bible and mentioning their um, you know their um, approach to say to the to the people of Israel to the Jewish people go always for peace as a as a, um, as a matter of 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 a life you know uh, something the high moral values that they preach for became the things that ben, that ben Gurion is preaching for the people of Israel nowadays uh, he's saying that prefer love and equality and human rights instead of other things and uh, yeah th- this this became the message of of the film which uh, in a way um, we we don't hear it as much from politicians and leaders uh, in Israel and outside of Israel. That's a great point because he has a, a different approach to political leadership than pretty much every other political leader that we currently see. And as you said, he does quote uh, the prophets and the Bible. And one in particular is from Jeremiah, where he says that a statesman who is not considering the things which ought to be done, whether it is popular or not, then he is a dangerous man. And so he's basically suggesting that populism uh, is dangerous. And, I mean, Ben-Gurion did take some very unpopular decisions, particularly around West Germany and the reparations uh, after World War Two, And that's something where he had a very strong view. And I'd just like to know um, your thoughts on that particular part of the film where he's recounting uh, his response to those who were pro- protesting in the street about the fact that uh, that Germany and Adenauer's Germany um, is not Hitler's Germany, he says, and that, you know, we need to make sure that we're punishing the right people, not those who uh, came, came after the perpetrators. Yeah, and again, he goes back to the Bible and he says uh, you cannot blame the, the sons uh, for uh, what the fathers did. And uh, this is the value that he's uh, going after. And he's saying uh, that the new Germany, the post-war Germany, is not the Germany uh, that was back then with the Nazis. And uh, I want uh, the new generation to be in touch with Israel. And and today, I must say, being part of the young generation of Israel, uh, you cannot... Uh, think of Germany other than being one of Israel's greatest allies, you know. So Ben-Gurion knew something. Ben-Gurion looked at the future and thought what will be the best for Israel. And uh, by doing peace with uh, Germany, by by negotiating with Germany, he knew that this will be something that will help Israel in in the future. And he he was right. He was right uh, in many things that he did. And uh, fortunately, he went with his guts, with his... uh, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, with his thoughts and vision, and um, 
uh, not hearing the public, not hearing the populist call or the protesters or everything. That's right. And he did create a really close relationship with West Germany through that vision and brought across West German scientists and arms experts around uh, nuclear. He also made sure that the Israeli soldiers that were new to the military and to fighting were trained by the German army, which no doubt was highly controversial at the time. Uh, but I also found it interesting that Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill comes up in that discussion and he says, I can't accuse him. Churchill had one task to defeat Hitler, but they could have saved many lives. They were asked to bomb Auschwitz Treblinka. They could do it. They didn't do it. So although he does have that visionary um, uh, goal and he's ignoring uh, the popular sentiment and he's maintaining close relationships with Adenauer, Chancellor Adenauer and the new uh, West Germany, he still um, – he still looks at World War II and thinks very critically about the outcome of that, not necessarily about the, the Jewish people who he believes um, it's quite wrong to suggest that they could have changed the outcome and that they could have defended themselves. But he does have some criticism for, for the Allies themselves. Yeah, that's true. But again, as you're saying, he's not criticizing Churchill. So he understood that uh, there was a a big, a bigger thing than uh, um, the, for Churchill uh, in this war, uh, but yes, he he does criticize the the Allies, and I think it's um, this is the way Ben Gurion, as a politician, you know, um, he he always finds the way. From the one hand, to give Churchill uh, uh, his blessing, but on the other hand, to criticize the others. So he's, uh, he's a good politician in that sense. Yeah, so that's, I guess, the strategy is really interesting to watch how he does balance that and, and it seems not contradictory at all. It seems very reasonable uh, what he's suggesting. And I think I'd really like to go to Ben-Gurion, the man and the person, because his personality comes through in this footage and the way that you've edited it, it's very warm, but it's also really matter-of-fact. And when the interviewer asks the question that's perhaps quite loaded or it's framed in a certain way, such as, you know, you're out here in the desert, you must like solitude, he's quite uh, happy to very immediately rebut anything that he, he disagrees with, but you find yourself empathizing with Ben-Gurion and, and having a great deal of sentiment toward him. Uh, yeah, he was in a period in his life, uh, five years after he resigned, and uh, this interview is being conducted uh, uh, four months after his wife passed away. So he is very much alone. He is in solitude. He is back in the desert, uh, uh, geographically away from the center of Israel, from uh, Tel Aviv, from Jerusalem, from politics, from everything. And uh, this um, makes this interview very intimate, and you discover the... Uh, warm personality of this very tough leader who now can allow himself to, to allow himself to talk freely about his uh, uh, decision making about his uh, um, his views about life and uh, and yes I think that's what makes this interview so unique 
Well, one of the things I found interesting in particular is that he was, he referenced the fact that he's been studying a great deal and researching the people who laid the foundations, as he says, for the state of Israel, uh, he suggests since 1870, and that he was writing a book that would encompass that that long history of the Jewish people and their relationship to um, the area that is the state of Israel now. I'm wondering whether he really uh, ever got to finish that or substantially uh, get through it. Do we have any evidence to suggest that um, his contribution ever, ever was finished or at least do we have any evidence that it exists? Uh, it does. He did publish some of the chapters of this uh, uh, mem- uh, memoir book, uh, but Ben-Gurion was uh, back then, uh, he was con- concentrating on every detail, of, on, on every uh, thing that for him, he thought it will be uh, very much important for the uh, future generations to know. And eventually those books, those memoir books became uh, a-, a bit, um, you know, not, not as readable as literature, but more as, uh, as um, uh, I, I don't know how to say it, but like encyclopedia. It's uh, emphasizing every detail, in, and it's not something that you enjoy reading. Uh, but this is Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion was uh, a person who, um, who really went with his uh, thoughts, with, his, uh, with the things that mattered to him. Uh, and eventually, I don't think he was uh, an artist, but a very good uh, leader and politician uh, who did things uh, the right way. And, um, and you can see it till this day in Israel. Yes, yes, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of um, even Winston Churchill's writings. It's not necessarily that entertaining, but very factual uh, and seeking to correct the record in some regards. Um, but I'd also just like now to to look at where Ben-Gurion was in his life at that time. He's sitting there in what looks like his study or his library, but you put together a lot of um, other archival footage of Ben-Gurion working on the land watering trees, uh, really contributing um, to the the operation of the communal area that he's part of. And in those um, instances, he isn't necessarily the, the former Prime Minister of Israel. He's just uh, David Ben-Gurion who's doing work and contributing. And he does refer to himself in that way. How do you – like? In in terms of as a director, inserting that footage and, and kind of illustrating that other side of him, what did you want to convey or balance in that um, in that contribution? You think of leaders of today. You think of uh, politicians. Of uh, think of Trump in the U.S. Uh, is he approachable? Would someone think of uh, going and, and, and finding him, shaking his hand, looking at him? Uh, no, all these leaders are unapproachable, even in Israel. Uh, who can now approach a politician and talk with him? And Ben-Gurion was, uh, was really keen to become as every person in Israel. Uh, he, was, uh, um, he wanted to... Um, to to become uh, like a figure that everyone could relate to, and uh, and and to become a model of uh, um, being modest, of not uh, taking uh, 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 the materialistic approach in life, but uh, only uh, dealing with what you need and what you're. Um, 
capable of doing and uh, settling the desert was, was one of the most important things for him. Uh, he wanted the young generation to come and settle the desert and, uh, and, and create from the nothing something. This was uh, one of the things that he was preaching for. And uh, this is the, the unique thing that you suddenly see a leader bigger than life, but at the same time, uh, human, a human being like all of us, uh, which you do not see from leaders uh, nowadays. That's so true. Um, Yarif, I feel like you've put together such a, an amazing feat uh, from six hours of footage to just over an hour and uh, managed to condense you know, the most important topics, but also give us an insight into, um, what, who seems like a, a lovely man is all I've got to say. It kind of left me with a lot of hope and optimism about, uh, political leadership and the way that our leaders could be and, um, and how they could be more relatable and also more down to earth and perhaps have, um, you know, be guided a bit more by, uh, philosophy and their principles. So, uh, I think it's a really great contribution that you've made and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about it today. Thank you very much. It's you know, it's for me. It was like speaking with my uh, grandfather who uh, who died already, and I hear it from so many people who come to watch the film, and they say you gave us a chance to meet our grandfathers uh, uh, who died already, and Ben Gurion is like speaking with them at the at, at the same way. So, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.